Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman and today we're discussing China's Belt and Road Initiative. Joining me in the studio is Christian Shepard, soon to join the staff of the FT in Beijing. And on the line from Rome is our correspondent, Miles Johnson. And the point of including somebody in Rome will become apparent in a moment. But Christian first, Belt and Road Initiative, briefly, what is it? Belt and Road Initiative is Xi Jinping's grand vision for a new form of trade and infrastructure networks across Eurasia that will tie China to surrounding countries through road, through railway, through dry ports, through special economic zones, and then bolster the trade relationship, but also increase China's geopolitical clout within the region. It's a very big project, isn't it? I mean, we're talking up to a trillion dollars, aren't we, over the course of many years? So some of the estimates suggest that we'll get up to around a trillion dollars around 2025. Current figures are thought to be around 200 billion. Yes, it certainly is a very big sweeping vision. Much of this was happening before there was already impetus for Chinese companies to go out and to invest overseas. But then there was this new rebranding and this new push to really strengthen these particular routes throughout Southeast Asia and Central Asia. And why do you think she has made it his signature initiative. What's the underlying motivation? Is it to do with the phase that China's economy has reached? Or is it to do with the phase its geopolitical ambitions have reached or some combination? It's a combination. And the economic impetus is largely to do with excessive capacity within China. China's economy is slowing. And for many years, it's been building bridges, high rises, all these construction companies. Well, they need something to do, they need somewhere to go. And it makes sense for them to build these new trade routes for China. But then there is also a much broader vision, which is about a rising China, one that is strong in its region. This is a move away from some of Xi's predecessors who are more into the idea of hiding and biding. But instead, there is this desire to really step up internationally to rework some of the international order, the trade order, and also international institutions. And one way to do that is through this platform of the Belt and Road. And Miles, I mean, when the Belt and Road first started emerging, there was a lot of concentration on China's near abroad, if you like, on Central Asia, Kazakhstan, and so on. But it's now clear that the Belt, or the Road, reach all the way into Western Europe, that Xi Jinping is indeed appearing in Italy tomorrow. We're talking on Wednesday. He'll be there tomorrow, Thursday. And Italy, I gather, is poised to become the first major EU country to sign up to Belt and Road. Is that what's about to happen, do you think? Yes, that is what is expected. Italy is expected to become the first G7 country to officially endorse the Belt and Road. And it's sort of an interesting development from an Italian perspective, a European perspective, and a NATO perspective in the sense that Italy has long voiced 
uh, desire, like most developed countries, to work closely with China to sort of reap economic benefits from collaboration with China, Chinese investment, but has always sort of towed the line and not breaking away from its sort of allies and getting too close to China. And what we've seen is Italy's current populist coalition government, which has markedly different approaches to international organizations and its predecessors, has effectively just said, we're going to break away and cozy up to China. And that is something which has alarmed some of Italy's traditional allies. And in a way, it's not that surprising that this populist nationalist government should be willing to stick a finger in the eye of Brussels, even though it's a member of the EU. But this is also something that Washington has lobbied against. And people like Matteo Salvini, the deputy prime minister, have been very, very close to the Trump administration. Does that surprise you? That is where it gets complicated because Matteo Salvini is very expert at sort of hoovering up a lot of the sort of international attention and sort of almost being portrayed, although he's only a deputy prime minister, minister of the interior, he's almost been portrayed as a sort of almost prime minister, effective prime minister. But what this China episode has revealed is a sort of multipolar nature of the Italian government in the sense that Salvini, as you say, has courted Trump, has been close to Trump advisors or former Trump advisor like Steve Bannon, and has very much cultivated this sort of air of the sort of international populist and someone who builds relationships along those lines. But he's actually been sidelined in this process. He has come out and said, you know, it's okay if the Chinese invest in our ports, but we don't want them investing in telecoms or any sensitive areas. And he's tried to row back a bit, whereas the momentum of other parts of the Italian government and the Italian state apparatus have overruled him. This is really a process being driven by Mattarella, the president, who is the person who's going to be meeting Xi, and Matteo Salvini's coalition partner, Luigi Di Maio, head of the Five Star Movement, who has said this is a fantastic opportunity to sell, quote-unquote, made in Italy to China. And so this is actually something which has weakened Salvini. And just give us a sense of what the optimists in Italy hope to see from this Chinese deal. I mean, are they thinking, you mentioned selling stuff to China, but are there also hopes for infrastructure development? They've talked about the development of the port of Trieste, for example. Yes, that's exactly it. The optimist stance on this is that Italy has several strategically important ports. They are currently starved of investment and sort of underperforming, underinvested, and they could do with some inbound capital and then subsequent use by large Chinese companies. But then there's also this other element to this where Italy, to a certain extent, has for a while, and especially much more under this government, due to their problems with Brussels over their budget. And, you know, Italy is the second most indebted country in the Eurozone after Greece as a percentage of GDP, and it needs people to buy its debt. And opening up a path for Chinese capital to flow into Italy and also to potentially buy its government bonds is something which is strategically advantageous. For the government, it diversifies its sort of funding sources away from what they see as a Brussels, which is the sort of referee in this game to some extent, which has been hostile to what the Italian government's trying to do. But of course, I guess potentially they get themselves hooked on a rather dependent relationship with China if the Chinese are essentially what's keeping the Italian state financially afloat. That is the fear. I mean, all parts of the Italian government, all the sort of figures in this, from Conte, the prime minister, to Salvini. Everyone has obviously been clear to caveat all of their comments about Chinese investment by saying we have to protect our strategically important interests. The architect of the Italian government's China policy, who is a technocratic political figure who's officially a part of the League, but is called Michele Geracci, 
He's always said that he wants greenfield investment from China. He wants Chinese capital to come in and build things in Italy, not just buy stuff up and sort of take it over. So that is something which all parties in this are very conscious of. And Christian, I mean, Miles mentioned earlier that there's concerns about the strategic significance of telecoms investment and said ports are relatively uncontroversial, but I'm not sure ports would be uncontroversial in the United States where they see a pattern of China buying up or building new ports now as far as Europe. Do they now control the port of Piraeus in Greece? They've got stakes in the port of Valencia. They've got stakes in ports in Belgium. And given there's a kind of emerging naval rivalry with the United States, is it too far to say that there is strategic significance to this? I think ports are very clearly a crucial part of the Belt and Road Initiative and control of certain choke points is something that China is keen to try and achieve so that it avoids having to have a sort of head-on collision with the United States as it tries to expand its naval power and also maritime trade. But there's also concern about investment in ports being used as a way of potentially allowing full Chinese control. The most striking example of this was in Sri Lanka, where a project was particularly indebted. And then in order to try and resolve the financing problems, a renegotiation was worked out whereby China would end up taking equity in the particular project. Uh, I think the concern from the United States is a lot about the idea that some of these other projects might similarly be a form of debt trap where the particular project runs into issues and the renegotiation process ends up granting certain sovereign rights to Chinese side. And Sri Lanka is the example you cite and which is often cited as the model of the debt trap. Mm. Have there been other examples yet, though? I mean, because defenders of Belt and Road say, well, sure, that one went wrong. But the idea that this is a systemic attempt to get people in debt and then take over stuff is not yet proven. Yeah, there is a debate to be had there, and it's unclear to what extent this is a planned strategy to try and use the potential for debt as a way of wrestling sovereignty. What might actually be the case is that it's much more shattergun in the approach that these deals are being made because they look like a good idea at the time, and there's a lot of pressure from Beijing for companies to go out and find these new projects that could potentially be useful and then some of them were just bad bets and the only way to get out of them is to try and renegotiate in a way which is in China's long-term interest. So it may be almost incidental when this happens. And Miles, Italy in a way up until now has been a prime example of a Western country that appears to have suffered very badly from the rise of China. Italian industry in, say, shoes and fashion have really been hammered. They've lost a, a huge number of industrial jobs, haven't they? Yes, but they're different strata to the Italian economy. So the thing in a world which is awash with capital and which people are sort of competing on cost of labor, it's very bad for Italy. But then in terms of other strengths of Italy, you know, G wrote an editorial in an Italian newspaper today where he lauded Italian food and Italian fashion and said how much Chinese youngsters love tiramisu and pizza. But these sorts of intangibles which Italy controls, mostly in terms of fashion brands, are something which cannot easily be replicated by sort of knockoff competitors in cheaper parts of the world. So that's where Italy actually has a huge strength. And so certain people believe that if you want to reposition the Italian economy to make it stronger, you basically have to sell these strong brands into China. And this made in Italy refrain is the thing that all the Italian politicians, you know, focused on and how that's going to help Italy move beyond its less successful recent industrial past. 
Okay, and finally, Christian, people, when they talk about the geopolitical ambitions, talk about China having a vision of Eurasia, that they're rediscovering the idea that there is significance, economic and geopolitical significance, the fact that this is one landmass going all the way from southern China to Portugal, and that we kind of forgot about that during the Cold War, but that potentially this could become a coherent unit economically and maybe even expanding Chinese influence. Do you think the thinking is that strategic? I definitely say that that is one part of the idea, which is that for a long time, this whole region of the world has been almost at a disadvantage because a lot of it is landlocked. And if you can break through that, then that gives you a huge potential for increase in trade and also just to try and create a coherent regional block. But there's also the other aspect, which is that much of the Belt and Road Initiative ties into some of these broader Chinese ambitions around trying to create international organizations, the UN and World Bank, etc., where China and other developing nations have a greater say. And therefore, there isn't much value for China to try and restrict it too much to a particular geography. And in fact, they have been very open in welcoming people from anywhere and said that any country that wishes to join, including the United States, would be welcome to do so. And so I think this is part of why the decision by Italy potentially to join the Belt and Road Initiative is symbolically so important, because it moves it outside of just being those developing nations that are within easy reach of China and along the set route. Okay, and with that thought, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much indeed to Christian Shepherd here in the studio in London and to Miles Johnson on the line from Rome. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.